You are listening to the podcast of New Life Church in Wayland, Michigan. Our longing is to see zero people in our community living unchanged by Jesus. We are a church navigating the messiness of life together in community. One of our core convictions is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. I hope you know there is a place in the family for you here. For more information on gathering times and location, check out our website. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. And uh, it's so good to have you with us this morning. Uh, As we jump into our teaching this morning, I want to give you just a a one-minute recap of last week, only because we had no recording because of some technical flukes and stuff like that. So if you weren't here, I just want to bring you up to speed. But we're in week two of a series right now called House of Prayer. Asking the question, what does it mean for us as a church to center our lives, center everything we are around this idea of longing for God, of prayer? And so last week we talked about this invitation that Jesus gave in John 7 where he he says, come to me all who are thirsty and I'll give you living water. And what we talked about last week is the whole idea is prayer doesn't start from kind of a one, two, three step program. It doesn't start with having the right language. A vibrant prayer life always begins with longing for Jesus with being thirsty for the living water that only Jesus can bring. You will not have a vibrant prayer life until you start in that place of longing for the person of Jesus. Now, with that being said, today I want to get really, really practical about how we do that. Because I don't know what your prayer life looks like. I imagine for some of us, maybe it's non-existent. Maybe we don't even know even where to begin with prayer. We don't know how to pray. We don't know what to say when we do try to pray. Maybe for others of us, we, we have a vibrant prayer life. We've, we've prayed for as long as we can remember. It is a part of our daily rhythm. And, and my goal for you today is for you to have a fresh perspective on how the Holy Spirit works in your prayers. And then maybe, maybe you're here and your prayers have maybe felt stale. Maybe you felt like nobody's listening. God, where are you? What are you doing? My hope for you today is you see how powerfully God's heart is moved through prayer. So I want to begin this morning by uh, sharing a little story with you. Uh, I love stories that embarrass myself and my family. So uh, <laughs> a couple of months ago, uh, yeah, so this isn't for you. This is more my embarrassing story. So I usually get her permission if I share an embarrassing story, usually. Um, <laughs> so uh, a couple of months ago, uh, this summer, uh, we started having an issue with smoke detector going off in our house in the middle of the night. And so uh, we live in kind of a weird setup house where like Sam and I's bedroom is upstairs on one part of the house and then you have to go downstairs through the main part of the house and then upstairs to our kids' bedrooms. And that's where the smoke detector was going off. So without fail, around 2 a.m. every single night, this smoke detector, this fire alarm just started going off. And we checked the batteries. It wasn't a battery issue. We could like we, we tried everything thinking through it. What is going on with this smoke detector? Now, I know we have some firefighters in our church, so they might uh, not be super happy, but we let this go for about three, four weeks or so, where every single night, this stupid smoke detector woke us up in the middle of the night, and so we would have to get up. It was almost like feeding a baby in the middle of the night, like, is it your turn or is it my turn? And uh, you can't use the breastfeeding excuse with that one, so never mind. So so every single... (laughs) I'm just going to... 
<laughs> oh my goodness. Whew. Okay. Yeah, I know. I just don't even know where I was. I'm squirrel. Holy cow. So, every single night, we're getting up in the middle of the night, going downstairs, checking out the smoke detector, and we just could not figure out why it had so many issues, why it kept going off. So this went on for three to four weeks. Finally, we did the smart thing and got a new smoke detector, installed it, and no more issues. Yay, yay. But what happened, this is the craziest part of the whole story. What happened was even after the smoke detector stopped going off, I still got woken up by phantom smoke detectors in the middle of the night. It was so ingrained in me that I kept getting woke up, and it was so, like, poignant and strong that I would actually have to still go downstairs to check to make sure it wasn't actually going off, and it didn't ever again do that. But, like, in my mind, it was just wired that it was still going off to the point where it would still wake me up in the middle of the night. Now, why would that be the case? The reason is because there is power in persistence. There is power in persistence where every single night the smoke detector goes off to the point where it wired my brain to hear it no matter what, even when it wasn't going off. And when Jesus, in the Gospels, teaches us how to pray, when he goes through the famous Lord's Prayer, our Father in Heaven, who we're gonna, which we're going to look at today, when he teaches his disciples this prayer, he frames this prayer the same exact way, saying there is power in persistence. In fact, in Luke 11, he tells a story right after he shares the Lord's Prayer with his disciples of a guy who is sleeping in the middle of the night and a friend comes and just knocks on his door and says, give me some bread! Does anybody have a friend like that? Like knocks on your door. I don't know why you'd want bread in the middle of the night. Maybe French toast sounded really good to him or something. But he's knocking on the door saying, give me some bread. And the guy in the bed is like, I don't want to get up and give him some bread. Maybe you are that friend that like goes and knocks on people's doors asking for bread. And there's this exchange that Jesus gives where it's like, okay, the thing that gets the friend out of bed to go get the bread is the first friend's persistence. It's the fact that he doesn't stop knocking. It's the fact that he doesn't stop going after the bread. It's his persistence that moves the heart of his friend. And Jesus says it is the same thing that moves the heart of God. It's your persistence. It's your asking, your seeking, your knocking over and over and over again. And yet we live in a world that doesn't practice persistent prayer. We live in a world that practices sporadic prayer or reactionary prayer. Right? If you do a kind of an overview of Google searches since the pandemic started, did you know that Google searches for prayer have more than doubled over the last two years? More than doubled. People, some for the very first time in their lives, are saying, God, I need help. <laughs> I, I can't do this on my own. And others are saying, God, you're no help at all and walking away altogether. There are no atheists in foxholes, right? Have we ever heard that saying before? There's no atheists. There's nobody who doesn't believe in God when they find themselves up against the wall and in a desperate situation. And yet, those are not the only types of prayer that God is after. He is after persistent prayer. And what I want to do this morning is I want to give us a very very practical model for practicing persistent prayer. And so we're going to begin this morning in Luke chapter 11. 
Luke chapter 11 is one of two places where Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to work our way through Luke 11 and kind of reference that back and forth with Matthew 6, which is the other place where Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer. So this is what happens in Luke 11. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. See, this is the model of prayer that Jesus gives us. And then he goes on and he tells us story afterwards about the power of persistence in prayer. And if you, uh, maybe you're sitting on it, but somewhere near your seat, you should have a, a little card that looks like this. These are yours to take home. But what I want to do this morning, this is going to be a little bit of a different format of a sermon. I want to work through this acronym here, P-R-A-Y, which is totally cheesy, but I love it, and you're going to remember it. But I want to work through this acronym here because I believe that if, if we are willing to put this type of thing into practice, and maybe you have a different acronym you use or a different model, that's fine. But if we are willing to put persistent prayers into practice, Man, I can't even begin to tell you how God's going to move on, on your behalf. And so uh, we're going to start with P this morning. P, what does that say for P? Pause. This may be the hardest one for some of us. We live in a very hurried, chaotic, busy, and just crazy world right now. Prayer does not start with speaking. It starts with pausing and listening. It starts with quiet, quieting the, the noise in our life. It starts with slowing down. See, we have an attention span that's less than a goldfish nowadays. <laughs> that's not a joke. That's like, it's science, okay? Uh, <laughs> we have very short attention spans. The problem, though, is that if our prayers don't begin with kind of this pausing and quieting the other voices in our lives, then we can just kind of trick ourselves and convince ourselves that we're praying or that we have a vibrant spirituality or a vibrant relationship with God. But all we're really doing is just kind of still performing, still kind of using the world's metrics of success and just bringing that into a prayer life. And so prayer begins with this idea of pausing, slowing down. Hurry keeps us performing. Maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, I have three kids under the age of six. Oh wait, that's me. There's no quiet time in my life whatsoever. Can I say to you, you don't find quiet and silence. You make it. You, you seek it out. You fight for it. You create it. Like maybe you have young kids and the idea of just getting silent before God or pausing, it doesn't even have to be total silence, but just pausing before God feels impossible. What would it look like for you to incorporate them into those rhythms? Right? When I'm putting my kids to bed at night, my temptation is to want to hurry them to bed, right? It's been a long day. I want to get them into bed and I want to just kind of relax for the rest of the night. What if instead our rhythm, we, prayer was such a persistent part of our lives that our rhythm with our kids was pausing, listening to their longings for God, spending time praying with them. Some of the most powerful and profound like, conversations that I have with my kids 
are when I am willing to quiet myself, pause, and listen to the voice of Jesus as they're going to bed. The other night, Sam came up to me. She's like, I just had the most beautiful conversation with our kids about the gospel. And it was just stunning. I said, oh, yeah, they asked me where babies come from. So that was, uh, that was a fun night. Uh, I didn't explain it. They're young. So just so you know. Uh, but the point is, like, for, like, there's so many opportunities for, for others of us. Maybe you don't have young kids, but, but maybe you wake up and the very first thing you do before any noise happens is you pull out your phone and you start scrolling through Facebook. You let Mark Zuckerberg get in bed with you. I, I say that boldly, but like, that's the truth. Right? Like before our feet even hit the floor. Some of us are just swept up in the noise and the chaos of the world. What if, what if your day didn't begin like that? What if you kept your phone outside your room? Sam is definitely going to hold me to this, so I'm not going to like it later on. But what if, you, what if you kept your phone outside your room and your morning began not with chaos in the world, but with silence and stillness before God? You see, too often, even when it comes to God, we listen to respond. We don't listen to hear and understand. Prayer begins with listening. I love how Richard Foster says this. He says, in contemporary society, our adversary, so the devil, Satan, he majors on three things. Noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can keep us engaged in muchness and manyness, he will rest satisfied. Jesus, on the other hand, found his identity by going before his Father and pouring out his heart in prayer. I read a book this past summer called uh, Spirituality of Living by Henry Nouwen. Super short book. Took about 25 minutes to read the whole thing. But in it, he, he shows kind of three moves of Jesus' life. The first one is his silence and solitude before his Father, just him and his Father alone. The second one is living in community with his disciples and those doing life with him, eating and traveling and and doing life together. And then the third one is him living on mission for the world. And what Nowen said in this book is he said, you know, a lot of us, we try to find our identity in the people around us or the community that we're in. Or we try to find our identity in the mission we're called to or the purpose that we have. This is a huge temptation of pastors, by the way. Jesus didn't find identity in either of those places. His identity was found in his oneness with his Father. That's where it happened. And it fueled his ability to live in community. It fueled his ability to live on mission for the world. The most important parts of your spirituality are never going to be seen by other people. Prayer begins with pausing, listening, sitting before God. And so when Jesus gives his disciples this new model for prayer, and he says, pray like this, Father, (laughs) that would have caused these disciples' jaws to drop. Because the picture of God that they had was one of a God who showed up in fire and wind and big, huge pillars of clouds and big, huge waves. I mean, they knew the God of Moses. They knew the God of the prophets, the God of creation, the big, big God. And yet Jesus gives a model that says, no, 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 you don't just approach God as the big God, but you approach God as Abba, Father, Daddy. See, the question Jewish people asked was not, is God real? It was, is God knowable? See, they had a perspective on God, but his name itself was so powerful 
that they would not even speak it on their lips. That was the level of reverence they had for God. And so for Jesus to say, hold on, hold on. Yes, God is this. Yes, the Father is this. But he is Abba. He is Dad. It's an intimate knowledge. I love how Jesus sets up the prayer and the message version that Sam read earlier. This is what he says. He says, the world is so full of so-called prayer warriors who are prayer ignorant. They're full of formulas and programs and advice, peddling techniques for getting you to get what you want from God. Don't fall for that nonsense. This is your father you are dealing with. And he knows better than what you know. He knows better than you what you need. And I love this last line. With a God like this loving you, you can pray very simply like this. That's movement number one. Pause. Still and quiet your life. And then it's out of the stillness where we move into movement number two. Rejoice. Rejoice in prayer. Man, I love this one because it's such a, it encapsulates so much. But the very first line that Jesus shares from the Lord's Prayer is when he says this. He says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So on one hand, you have Jesus saying, this is your father you're speaking to. This is intimate. This is, this is daddy as refuge, like you are a little child who is completely dependent on your father or your mother. This is the picture that he gives of God. But then in the same exact sentence, he says, our father, hallowed be your name. Meaning that in this relationship, we approach God with the intimacy of a father and the reverence of a king at the exact same time. There is no other relationship on the planet that looks like that. You see, I think for some of us, we, we have hang-ups when it comes to how we approach God in prayer. Like for some of you, there are very real wounds that have come from earthly fathers, earthly mothers. And so when you hear God referred to as father, you just see someone who lets you down all the time. Maybe has wounded you or abused you, and that's a significant hang-up for you. And I just want you to hear, if that's you, that's okay. Like, all of us have hang-ups when it comes to how we pursue and approach God in prayer. But what Jesus is getting at here is he's saying, this Father is a Father that can be trusted, unlike perhaps an earthly Father. This is the Father that you can build your life upon, that you can put your hope in. But on the flip side... Maybe you love the idea of Father. Maybe that gives you like warm fuzzies and cozies, like God is my Father. On the flip side, Jesus also says, this Father is to be reverenced and revered above everyone and everything else. See, I don't know in Western culture and American culture if we know how to honor much of anything anymore. If we are such a culture of dishonor, such a culture of just ripping everything and everyone apart, and what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, this God, his name deserves to be hallowed. Like you can rejoice. This is where the rejoice comes in. You can rejoice in knowing who he is, what he's done, and what he's like. That when you open your mouth to hallow the name of God, that you are adoring, you are naming the greatness of God, you are celebrating and you are rejoicing in his character. Father, Daddy, hallowed, holy be your name. 
And when we open our mouth to say, God, hallowed be your name, we have most likely been hallowing all kinds of other names over here. And so in order to hallow the name of God, we have to be willing to unhallow the names over here. Maybe your other names that you're hallowing as accomplishment or image or job or education or ability. In order to hallow the name of God, it is absolutely required that you unhallow every other name in your life. What do you need to renounce in your rejoicing? See, this is where persistence comes in. That as we rejoice in God's character, He begins to convict us and expose the areas of our life where maybe we have hallowed other names. Where maybe we have elevated other names, not maybe even higher than His, but to close seconds or close equals to His. And when Jesus teaches us how to rejoice in God's character, to hallow His name above every other name, the implied thing that he's getting at here is you need to renounce other names in your rejoicing in who God is. So what I love about Scripture is that throughout this whole book, repentance and rejoicing go hand in hand with each other. Repentance always leads to rejoicing. In Psalm 51, David said this, he says, God, these bones that you have crushed are now rejoicing because for David, sin was this crushing kind of like like slavery type thing that was just such a heavy weight. And for God to convict David and to stir up in his heart the things that are alignment with, out of alignment with God and to lead him in the way of repentance, to lead him towards the character of God, David's only response to that God was rejoicing. Let me put this another way. We know, most of us know, that we are pretty sinful people. <laughs> I think deep down we know that. Like, there are times where we mess up a lot. There are times where I let the people in my life down a lot, where I feel like maybe I'm not the best dad in the world or the best husband in the world. And I think maybe a lot of us, if we really dig down, feel some of that. The reason that repentance can lead to rejoicing is when we have an accurate picture of who we are, that we're not always the best people, that we can do crappy things sometimes, and we contrast that with the hallowedness of God, how holy and good He is, that when we live with that perspective and we can see that in that he chose to pardon us from our sin, free us by the blood of the Lamb, then that leads to rejoicing. Jesus said in Luke 15 that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 who do not need to repent. This is why we practice repentance in the church. This is why we say, God, these are the areas of my life that are out of alignment with you. These are the sin areas that I'm navigating. These are the things that I'm holding on to that I have not yet surrendered or let go of. And repentance is saying, I'm releasing these and I'm turning to a hallowed, holy God who loves me like a father. That's rejoicing in prayer. That's why we make such a big deal about baptism around here. Because in baptism, we are renouncing every other name and we are going public for the name of Jesus in front of our whole church. If you have not been baptized yet, please do it. Come talk to me. I would love to have a conversation with you. This is why we, we do things like testimonies in the church. Because when I can see and hear the story of another person about how God has worked and moved in their life, it leads me to a, a place of rejoicing for how he has worked and moved in my life. I'm going to be just total transparent about what I really want for us as a church in 2022. 
We asked Tyler, who got baptized last week, to share his story, and it was such a powerful story. And I feel like stories have really been kind of a missing piece for us as a church over the last couple of years. I want to reclaim that this coming year. And so if you have a story that you think the church needs to hear, I would love to hear it. Because in our sharing of stories, in the word of our testimony, rejoicing in the goodness and character of God is the natural outcome of that. Next one here, this is why we gather. Notice this is not designed to be a prayer that says, my father, it's our father. It's a collective prayer. You know, COVID was really hard on the church as we had to do shutdowns. I'm even thinking about a, a year ago this time, like we had to shut down for a couple weeks as a church. And I know that's controversial and up and that whatever, like that's, I get it. But there's something innately in us that desires to gather together to rejoice in the goodness and presence of God. Something so vital to who we are as people. That it's not just on the same level as everything else that we do. It's not on the same level as going out to eat or even going to school. I know that's controversial. What we do when we gather together as the body of Christ to rejoice in the presence and the goodness and the character of God transforms everything else. So rejoicing. And that is a huge part of what we do in prayer. And under rejoicing is repentance and acknowledging the character of God. Third movement here is asking. Asking. In the middle of the prayer, Jesus says these words, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those have trust uh, our debtors. Sorry, mixing up translations there. Asking, this is the center of the prayer, asking is the hinge point where heaven meets earth in prayer. Notice what Jesus says here. He says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the center. This is the hinge point as, of the prayer. So, so far in the prayer, we've been focused upward. We've been focused on the character and the goodness of God. And now what we say is, God, bring that character and that goodness to earth as it is in heaven. Let us experience it. Let us not just believe it. Let us not just speak it. But let us experience it on earth as it is in heaven. You see, I believe this with everything that I am that God wants to bless you. I believe that God wants to bless you. But here's the kicker, and this is where the prosperity gospel falls apart. That would say God wants you to you know, be wealthy and healthy and all of that stuff. This is the kicker. God does not want to bless you in a way that fosters your independence from him. Like if your version of blessing allows you to live less dependent on him, more independent from him, whether that is money or health, or whatever it might be. God doesn't call that a blessing. He calls that a curse. And so the way that God wants to bless us will always increase our dependence on Him. Jesus says it this way in Luke 11, at the end of this chapter. He says, how much more does God want to bless you? If you who are evil can give good gifts to your children, how much more does God want to bless you with His Holy Spirit? This is what Jesus says. And so God's greatest blessing is his presence. It's his nearness to you. I'll often uh, talk to people who um, 
who will be grieving or, or struggling through something. And we often treat God's peace like something He just kind of sprinkles on us from a distance. Or we treat you know, God's, God's blessing as something He offers us from a distance. God's blessing is that He offers us Himself. And so when somebody is grieving, God doesn't just kind of lob you peace from a distance. No, what God does is He offers Himself fully to you because He is peace. His presence is peace from the storm. This is what it means for God to bless us. About a year and a half ago, you guys all remember like the toilet paper shortage that happened, right? Where everybody was going after toilet paper and it was flying off the shelves. Well, my father-in-law, who's a doomsday prepper, um, I totally just outed him. He's been a doomsday prepper for uh, years. And uh, he, he, uh, he found a resource that had a bunch of toilet paper. So I swear, the man ordered us two years of toilet paper. And when we got it, we felt like super immoral and dirty because everybody else it was like, Sam, we can't tell people we have all this toilet paper here. And so we haven't bought toilet paper at our house for, for like almost two years. Now we're just running out. It was really crappy too, no pun intended. It was like half-ply toilet paper, I swear. Just the worst of the worst stuff. And so we haven't had to think about buying toilet paper for over a year. And some of us, we approach God this way, almost with like a Costco-type mentality. We're like, God, I can stock up, I can pray, and then God, I don't need you because I've prayed, I've done my prayer for the month, and you know, whatever. Jesus, remember, Jesus teaches us not to pray for months' supply of bread at a time. He teaches us to pray for daily bread. Which means that what Jesus is after is not your belly being full, but you being satisfied with the presence of God in your everyday lives. He's referencing back to the Israelites in the wilderness who got manna every single day and they hated it. You know manna literally means what is it? It's such a weird word. And so they got manna every single day. And what would happen? Ooh, I'm getting fired up here. What would happen? I'm sweaty too. It's hot. What would happen if the Israelites took more than just one day's worth of manna? Anybody know? It would spoil. It would rot. Because God wasn't just after full bellies. He wasn't just after leading his people to a place of safety and, uh, and security. What he wanted in the wilderness was for them to learn that he is their safety. He is their security. And so God is not after Costco prayers where you just kind of, you know, build up a, a month's worth of supply and don't have to think about God all that much. No, God is after daily bread type of prayers. Prayers that say, God bless me, but bless me in a way that makes me completely and totally dependent on you. Or God, I am lost without you. You see, when we ask God, when we put asking into practice, we place ourselves in vulnerable dependence on God. Your needs for physical security, clothing, food, warmth, those aren't bad things. Jesus just doesn't want you living on the illusion that you provide those things for yourself. Your need to belong or be accepted or to live free from anxiety is not bad. Jesus just wants to be the one that meets those needs for you. That temptation you're facing, that temptation of sin, it is not wrong to be tempted to sin. Jesus was tempted to sin. Hebrews 4 says he endured every single temptation we have. But what does he do? He redirects it for the glory of God. 
He doesn't want you to overcome temptation by just buckling down and trying harder and doing better. That fosters independence from God. What Jesus wants is for you to be so surrendered to the person of God that you overcome temptation because you are walking in step with his spirit every single step of the way. Hebrews 2.18 says, Because Jesus suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So the big question I think that comes up when we talk about asking is what happens when God doesn't seem to respond to our asking? I think this is a really important practical question that a lot of us ask. Like what happens when I've been praying and that family member still dies? Or the diagnosis comes through in a way that I didn't want or the job falls through? Or when God seems to answer one prayer at the expense of another, right? It's like brides and farmers are both praying about the weather on the same day. The bride wants no rain, the farmer wants rain. Right? What happens in those types of situations? You know, we see that type of stuff happen even in Scripture. For example, in Acts 12, you have two people imprisoned. James and you have Peter, both part of the inner circle, both incredible leaders in the church. And Peter is freed by a miraculous move of God. The angel of the Lord frees Peter. He goes back to the church's prayer meeting, and they rejoice together because God responded to their asking. But then in the very same chapter, the very same government officials that captured Peter, that imprisoned him, just a few verses before that, they captured James and they put him to death. What happens when God doesn't answer our prayers in the way that we thought. One, one of these situations ends in grief. One ends in joy. Why? To be honest, I don't know. If I did know, I could live independently from God. Like if I had the answer to how God answers prayers, I wouldn't need God. I wouldn't need Him. See, I don't know why. This is just one that's been on my mind recently and in my heart recently. I don't know why with like this foster care case and adoption case that we're walking through, why God allows our little boy to live a healthy and thriving life and he allowed his sister to die starving as a ton-month-old in her crib. I've wrestled with God a lot over that. I don't know why God allows somebody close to me this week to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's and watch their world fade away. I don't know. I don't know why or how God answers prayers in the way that he does. But here's what I do know. You cannot build trust in God without asking. God wants to hear you say it. God wants to hear it from your lips because what asking does is it forces us to not just view the spiritual surgery from, an oper- from a distance, from a safe get- viewing gallery, Asking God actually forces us to go down into the operating room, climb up on the spiritual operating table, and say, God, have your way with me. It places us in this place of vulnerable dependence on the person of Jesus. Some of us don't have trust in God because we just haven't asked him. Jesus says once again, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will God give himself to those who ask? The prize of the asking is not the gifts. The prize of the asking is the giver of the gifts. So ask. And then perhaps the most important movement is the last one here, yield. This is how the prayer ends. 
that the fruit of prayer is not what happens to us. The fruit of prayer is what happens in us. This is how Matthew 6.13 ends the Lord's Prayer. It says this, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, some of you might be thinking, my Bible doesn't have that last line there. And there's a lot of debate on if Jesus said that last line. If he didn't, some believe it was added as a doxology by the church later on. Some believe that um, any Jewish person praying would have ended a prayer like this. So it's most likely that Jesus said, we don't know. The earliest manuscripts don't have this last line in them. Um, That's honestly, for me, neither here nor there. Uh, Partly because Jesus echoes the same spirit throughout his entire ministry on the end there. But the other piece of it is no matter how you end the prayer, it ends in yielding no matter what. Like, if the prayer ends for you, deliver us from evil, that's a prayer of yielding. If the prayer ends with, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen, which I like that ending better, but, you know, uh, that's, that's yielding as well. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but it ends with yielding. You see, Jesus made a way for us to approach God without fear. In the Old Testament, if Moses or any man was to see God face to face, he could not see God's face and live. With Jesus, that doesn't change, but it's not the physical self that dies. It's the false self that dies. That in prayer, in yielding, you cannot approach the face of God and not have His light, His presence, expose all of the cracks in you and shatters every layer of false self. See, a lot of us, we bring our false self into the world where we have to perform to survive or we have to bring certain you know, forms of, of currency into the world, whether that's the way we look or the way we speak or where we live or how much we make. All of those systems of value of your own making to trick the people around you or even yourself, those fall apart in the presence of God. This is where yielding is so important that, God, I acknowledge that all of those are false currency in your presence. So make me who you want me to be. The most important work of prayer is not what happens to us, it's what happens in us. And so this is why we yield in prayer persistently. I'm going to invite the band back up as we close uh, this morning, but I want to just close with Luke 11, 9 here. Luke 11, 9 says this, right after Jesus is done teaching this prayer, he says, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. You know, the Greek here is this idea of don't stop asking. It's like there almost should be an ING on the, on the end of those words there, because that's really what Jesus is getting at here. Don't stop asking. Don't stop seeking. Don't stop knocking. Get really persistent about this. Some of the language or some of the commentary I read, like, don't be afraid to bother God with your prayer. I believe that if you can take this card home and you can keep it in your wallet, you can keep it on your rear mirror, wherever wherever you're going to see it, I encourage you to use this rhythm daily, multiple times a day. Pause. Rejoice. Ask. Yield, pause, rejoice, ask, yield over and over again. If you put this into practice, I promise you, I guarantee you, you will see God move in ways that you otherwise wouldn't. I don't know what that means for you. I don't know what that means for your life. But you will see God move in powerful ways. Many of you know the name Dwight L. Moody. 
who's a famous evangelist. There's a school in Chicago named after him, Moody Bible Institute. Just this incredible, incredible person of prayer. And Dwight L. Moody knew the power of persistence because for much of his adult life, he carried around a list in his back pocket of a hundred names of people who were far from God. A hundred names. And every single day, he prayed for those people by name, one after another after another, bringing them before God, asking and yielding and rejoicing and pausing and, and just doing this in God's presence. And over the course of his life and ministry, through his persistent prayer, he was able to lead 96 of those people to Christ. 96 of those people to Christ. That's a powerful testimony that can only come through persistent prayer. But here's the craziest part. Those last four people, whoops, last four people, they came to Christ at his funeral. This is how powerful persistent prayer is. Some of you are here and you've been praying for the same name over and over and over again. Could it be that this Christmas is the Christmas God wants to draw them to himself? I don't know. Might be another year of praying. Don't stop the persistence. Don't stop the asking. Don't stop the pursuing. Jesus' invitation is to keep on doing it and keep on doing it and keep on doing it and watch what God does in you in the process. And so as we close today, before we jump into worship... I want to just put the words of the Lord's Prayer up here. <coughs> Excuse me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We're going to just leave a couple minutes of space here before we sing again. Maybe there's a line of this prayer. We're going to leave this up on the screen. Maybe there's a line of this prayer that jumps out to you right now because of the season of life that you are in. Pray through that. Pray through that. We're going to leave some space right now for you where you are, the season you're in, the stuff you're carrying, to put this into practice right now. Pause. Rejoice. Ask. And then we're going to worship and we're going to yield ourselves to who Jesus is. So take just two minutes right now and then we're going to sing.